0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parsha Tzav this morning. We're in continuing in the book of Leviticus. Uh, and, um, this is the Parsha, uh, that, that really starts to explain all of these sacrifices. And so you, those of you who've been learning with me for a while, you know, there's, there's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack in terms of our, uh, understanding of them and then our association with what, what does that mean in terms of spiritual practice throughout the ages once the temple was destroyed? But we're not going to talk about sacrifice today because I decided we're going to talk about something else. Cause as you know, I'm studying Zornberg, her new book on Leviticus called, um, Uh, the hidden order of intimacy, uh, which is how she talks about this whole system is the order of intimacy, right? Between the people and the divine, uh, and the way that, and, and the word korban, uh, in Hebrew, there is no word for sacrifice in English. The word korban comes from kuf resh vet as the shoresh, as the root, which means to draw close, to come close. So korban is that which makes us draw close or makes God draw close. It doesn't matter which one because it's about both of them really, but it's about drawing close. This is what korban essentially is. So the korban is the way somebody brings a sacrifice. So intending to give something. There's lots of theories, lots of anthropological explanations about lots of different cultures in terms of what does it do? Does it take the place of what one deserves? So the animal dies instead of the person who's committed uh, a sin. But that doesn't really make sense for offerings of well-being, that the animal stands in for you when you're giving an offering out of gratitude. That doesn't make a lot of sense. So um so it could have been the origin of the sin sacrifices, those, you know, about the guilt offering, but not so much about a peace offering or a shlamim, you know, a, a, a coming out of a sense of fullness and wellness and wholeness that that doesn't make a lot of sense. It, and it, in any case, what we know is that part of it is given to God, part of it is given to the priests, and then the Israelite themselves eats it. At one point in Israel's history, only sacrificial meat could be eaten. That's an important point. If you can only eat sacrificial meat, a sacrificial system makes a lot of sense, right? You can only eat sanctified meat. You can't just kill things and eat them. There has to be an underlying cause, and it's a cause, whether you've done something wrong or something good has happened, there's a cause, but the ultimate point of bringing the sacrifice is to draw close to God and to have God draw close to you. That's how you get to eat meat. You don't get to just eat meat because you want to eat meat. There has to be some kind of compelling drawing close between you and the divine um, for that to ha- for that killing to be allowed to happen and the consumption of that animal to be allowed. Um, so so the that means meat wasn't eaten a lot. It was not a huge part of their diet. Um, we're not sure that the sacrificial system ever really happened. The way it's described, because if you start adding up all the bulls and cows and sheep that are supposed to be brought, let's say, for a holiday or whatever, you start getting into the kinds of numbers that just does not make sense in ancient Israel to have supported that much livestock. Um, so there's there's not evidence that it ever really existed as the system that we have described. Um, I'm one of the people who says it doesn't really matter. You know, what we're handed is the idea. Um, of sacrifice and the idea of um korban of of drawing close i just want to ask if if that was during the temple time the that that food or eating meat was associated only with something to do with god wouldn't that sort of be a carryover then to the kosher laws that makes sense that somehow we're always eating something when we eat Especially the this special way that we kill animals. Yes, is I would just. I with? would say it differently. Shmini is as old as this system. Shmini may predate this system. The ne- next week's parsha that talks yeah, about kashrut pre- may predate this. Yeah, I'm saying. So I'm not follow. saying this carries over. I'm. Uh, to, I'm just. I would just restate it a little bit and say, Israelite approach to eating yeah. in general was understood to be absolutely related to a relationship with the divine that affects many different ways of eating. Mm -hmm. One is what you can eat. The other is then when you're allowed to eat it. Yeah. They're they're all part of the same. They were acculturated to associating, making that association. Correct. That they, that, that that eating by definition was an act that could be a holy act or a profane act. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to always have it be a holy act. Um, and and we still feel this way a lot as Jews that we never bought the split the Aristotelian Greek split between body and spirit between the physical material world and the abstract more world of spirit we never bought that split so that means every single material function of a human being can be seen as a way to bring forth holiness or not right makes, makes the kosher sensible right no that's (laughs) right because it was understood that there were certain things that you don't eat if you want a life uh, a practice of a consumption of holiness um lynn i'm wondering too in uh past torah study when we've discussed how the uh jews the hebrews came into the land that they adopted or brought in the pagan customs and layered, uh, maybe religiosity over it in order to win over the population that they had conquered. So, what the Israelites were doing is making it more familiar. Oh, all right. So, we can still have sacrifice. Maybe then they were human sacrifice, but now it's animal sacrifice. Okay. So, um, I, so yes. And let me just restate that in a little bit. Because, um, I am someone who subscribes to the scholarly opinion that there was no conquering of Israel by anybody that uh, a group from within Canaan rose to power. There might have been a small group from the desert that pushed in and had their own kind of Yahweh experience and slavery experience and push in and whatever, but that, but they start to take over the folks who are already rising to power, um, in Israel. Uh, possibly it started in the hill country. We're not sure. Um, but whatever starts to, to happen, it's from within Canaan. There's no material culture change in the archaeological record from pre-Israelite to Israelite. That tells us that nobody came in with a different material culture. It all evolved from within Canaan. So you have Israelites who are now revaluing they are reconstructing their own pagan practices so you right so you have as they become Yahwist, they reconstruct what their pagan sacrifice means it's not that far off from what it meant to sacrifice to baal or to isis right it's not it's not terribly far off you're a you're propitiating the god right you're giving god something hoping for something in return so it's not it's not completely a break with pagan sacrifice but it is certainly a reconstruction um of understanding that the priest well always the priest in the ancient world ate from whatever was offered that's how you sustain the priesthood that's how you pay them um have a staff for the temple uh, but um what was i saying so so they they always would have participated in those ways. I think that the Israelite, some of the reconstruction for Israelites, um, is that, and I was going to say that it's that God doesn't, doesn't consume, you know, the gods were said to eat the offerings. You brought offerings and the gods ate the offerings, but that's not even true because, um, God is thought to consume the Reach nihoach the, wonderful smell that comes from the sacrifices god is said to consume that and you're having a meal with the divine right that's the point of sacrifice you have a meal with the with the with god so you eat it in the sacred precincts um so anyway so yes so it is related to pagan sacrifice it's not completely a new system it it's a so sometimes it's interesting which we've looked at before is to look at the ways how does israelite the sacrificial system differ from the pagan, you know, Canaanite, Mesopotamian system, because that's kind of like interesting about okay, so what was the Israelite innovation? You know, what's the reconstruction? Mm-hmm. Um so sometimes we've we've looked at that and we I'm sure we will again. So thank you for that, Lynn. Okay. Um so, but like I said, we're not gonna be talking about sacrifice <laughs> today. Um just um wanting to set some of the whole business up so that we get that um kind of as our starting point. Okay, uh, so, need, so what we are going to look at is we're going to look at chapter eight of, uh, of Leviticus and, and we're going to look at the, because we're going to, we're going to piggyback on last week on our last, uh, Shior, our last lesson together. Um, we're going to piggyback on, remember we talked about the anxiety of God's presence filling the Mishkan and Moshe goes ahead and builds the Mishkan without any instruction to do so he's been given the instructions of how he hasn't been given the instruction to he goes ahead and there's all this anxiety about have they truly been forgiven for the golden calf and will the shinah fill the mishkan okay so um so we talked about that last week so then we're going to look this week at a continuation of that and it's interesting how it shows up in the Midrash. So, uh, Aviva Zornberg has always is uh, richly, richly, uh, familiar and, uh, and amazingly talented at, at bringing forward, uh, the Midrashic tradition. She's steeped in, in the Midrashic tradition, um, and knows it extremely well. So, uh, she brings forward, because it's interesting what Torah tells us. It's also interesting what the rabbis do with that. Like, what do the rabbis imagine? That we just go, wait, what? Like, why, why, why would you go there? But it's, it's, it's very interesting that there's a lot of Midrashim, um, that are not done with the anxiety from last week. Even though we have the erection of the Mishkan, even though things seem to go okay, we have a, a lot of the Midrashic tradition hangs on to that anxiety, which is very interesting to me. Okay. So let's look at, what are we going to look at? We're going to look at the investiture of, uh, Aaron and the priests. So, I don't God says to Moshe saying, Take Aaron with his sons and their vestments, the anointing oil, the bull of sin offering, Two rams and the basket of unleavened bread. So just even in your head, start to calculate how many animals we're talking about, right? And you start to see why some folks think this is exaggerated, and it was not possible that this kind of uh, level of keeping of livestock was was possible in the ancient areas. Um, okay. So this is important. So um, and assemble. So hakel all. And all of the edah, all of the community, Hakel, you will, what is Hakel? What is Kahal? Yes, you will communify, right? You will congregationalize. Um, El Petach Ohel Moed, at the entrance, at the opening of the Ohel Moed. So all of the community is to be at the Petach, at the opening of the Ohel Moed. Uh, you know, numbers range, but the, the, the tradition around Sinai and Revelation was 600,000. 600,000 people or 600,000 men. 600,000 people, I think. Um, and Moshe did everything that God commanded him. And when the leadership was assembled, um, interesting, it's saying leadership. I don't know why they're translating it that way. I didn't look that up. Um, they assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moshe, Moshe says to the Edah, to the community, This is what God has commanded be done. All right. Now here's, here's an interesting verb. So look at this verb in six, the beginning of six. Here you have the shoresh of this verb. The root is kuf, resh, vet. Right? My little pointer should be showing you. Yeah. Kuf, resh, vet. That is the, re- the shoresh, the root of what did I just say a little while ago? A sacrifice of korban. Kuf, resh, vet, which is also a bet, of course, if you know Hebrew. The vet is also a bet. So korban, karov, is close. crave here's the verb. What are you going to karav? What are you going to bring close? Oh, Pinterest for me. Okay. Um, What are you going to bring close? you're going to bring close who Moshe you're going to bring close Aaron and his sons. So the same word that's used for sacrifice is used for bringing forward Aaron and his sons. Zornberg's going to talk about this. And of course, if you're going to do some kind of change of status for them that has to deal with holiness in any way, what do you have to do? Yes, but not yet. First, you have to wash. There's always a ritual washing. Always. It's almost universal. The idea that water purifies. The idea that water purifies and therefore can help change status. This would be a ritual washing. Like before you go to the mikvah, you have to be completely clean. You have to shower and clean under your fingernails and like all all loose hair has to come off. So this is a completely ritual washing um and he put on him so moshe put on aaron right the tunic the kuttonet and girded him with the sash Closed him clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him girding him with the decorated band with which he tied it to him so this is about how they fastened the ephod to the priestly garments he put the breastpiece on him and put into the breastpiece the urim and tumim right this is the uh, omen, right? You can get an answer. What is it called? Is it an omen? What is it called when you go to an oracle? It's like an oracle. And he put the headdress on his head, and on the headdress in front, he put the gold front lint, the holy diadem that says what, right? That says Kadosh La Adonai. So uh, set aside for God. And Moshe takes the oil of Mishcha of anointing. And anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it, thus consecrating them. So this is how one consecrates stuff often, not just in the ancient Jewish world. It's in other places as well. You use anointing oil, right? The, uh, uh, so the oil is anointing oil, mishcha, right? This is where we get Mashiach. This is where we get Messiah is from this word. So it doesn't mean Messiah doesn't mean what everybody translates it to mean. It comes from Meshicha It means anointed. So the anointed one. Period. End of story. That's it, folks. That's all they wrote. That's all they wrote. Meshicha is just anointing. Um So he anoints the tabernacle and everything that's in it. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, anointing the altar, all its utensils and the labor with its stand to consecrate them. Seven, right? An important number for us. He poured some of the anointing oil upon Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Who else gets oil poured on their head to be consecrated? They, they will, but, but who else? What other, what other role in ancient Israel? And the kings. Yes. Good, Pam. The king. The king is anointed with oil, which is, you know, why oil of all, I mean, it could have been anything. You could have anointed them with hibiscus flowers. Well, there was stuff in the oil. So the oil is a carrier for the stuff that was in it. Incense, you know, myrrh, frankincense, you know, there were, there was stuff in it that would have made it. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure it's, it's part of the ancient world's kind of normal routines. Why oil? I'm not sure. I haven't read anything about it. Uh but but it's interesting if you think about it if the king is anointed and the high priest is anointed, it's kind of like um in in Europe when you think about who crowns the monarch, right? So who crowns the monarch? The head of the church. But you also have tension between if the monarch doesn't like the church, right? I mean, you've got all this tension where it's like the church sometimes has to acquiesce and, and uh crown someone they don't like, right? Because the person has a lot of power and could cause a lot of trouble for the church. But it, there's this inherent kind of um, tension between the head of the religious expression of the civilization and the Political head, right, of the civilization. So, I mean, the fact that they're both anointed to me is not an accident, not right? It's a way of kind of putting them somewhat on par with each other. Not just in kingdoms, and not just then. Yes. It's yes. Not just in kingdoms and, and democracies. Absolutely. Today, <laughs> what? what are you talking about, Bert? In democracy, that's impossible. Okay. Um, okay. Here we here we get the verb again. Kuf, reish vet. Moshe And Moshe brings close the sons of Aaron and he dresses them in tunics skirted with sashes and wound turbans upon them as God had commanded Moses. And he led forward the bull of sin offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hands upon the head of the bull of sin offering. Right. That's how you designate the sacrifice as belonging to you. You put your hands on it. You designate that it belongs to you. And it was slaughtered. Moses took the blood and with his finger put some on each of the horns of the altar, purifying the altar. Then he poured out the blood at the base of the altar. Thus he consecrated it in order to make expiation upon it. Moses then took all the fat that was about the entrails and the protuberance of the liver and the two kidneys and their fat and turned them into smoke on the altar. The rest of the bullets hide its flesh, its dung he put to the fire outside the camp as God had commanded. Then he brought forward the ram of burnt offering. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands, right? So now they're bringing up the olah. So one was a sin offering, suggesting that priests sin. So first comes the sin offering. It's understood. If they're human beings, they sin. So no problem. It's not a thing. It's just, of course, if you're going to now do something with them, you got to first take care of their sins. So the sin offering, then the olah, the Holocaust, right? So the Holocaust comes next, completely burnt uh, on the altar. And it was slaughtered. Moshe dashes the blood against the sides of the altar. The ram was cut into sections. He does what he's supposed to, blah, 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 blah. Second ram, uh, now this one is of ordination. They lay their hands on it. They have to do that, right? They take. He takes the blood, puts it on the right ridge of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Then the sons come forward, and he does the same thing with them, and then dashes it against the side of the altar. Unleavened bread, we have. Um... And a cake of oil bread, a wafer, and he places uh, them on the fat parts of the right thigh. Then he places these on the palms of Aaron, on the palms of his son, and elevated them as an elevation offering uh, before God, a tenufah. So then he takes it from their hands, turns it to smoke. Look who's officiating. Who's officiating? Moses. Which is interesting. Moses is officiating everything here. And... There has to be, in Zornberg's imagination, and in the minds of the rabbis, there has to be something in Moshe. that This isn't just a kind of a straightforward thing. Moshe is acting as high priest as he invests Aaron with the powers of the high priest, which means in investing Aaron, Moshe divests himself of a certain kind of authority. He's no longer the leader, and he's now officiating as high priest, but he's not going to be high priest. So it's this odd kind of moment of both investiture investiture, and divestiture that's happening at the same time. Um, so he takes it from their hands, turns it to a burnt offering, and as an ordination offering, right here we got reach Um, and we're talking about miluim, um, an ordination uh, offering, miluim hayim, lareach nichoach. So miluim is this idea of ordination. But what does the word male mean in Hebrew? I need Betsy here. Mem, lamed, aleph, Malay. full. Exactly. Malay means full. So miluim. What? What? So this we say ordination, but it's like, how would you translate that? Fullnesses. <laughs> right. Um, OK. But, and so he takes the breast and elevates it. So this is like he this is what he's been told to do. He's going through everything that he's supposed to do. He consecrate Aaron and his vestments and also his sons and their vestments. And he says, you need to boil this stuff at the entrance of the tent and eat it. Blah, blah, blah. And you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days. Until the day that your period of ordination, your miluim, until, look at the Hebrew, ad yom mloot yeme miluchim. Until the day that is full, or that fulls, the days of your filling, right? This is all language of fullness. So, um yimale because for 7 days yimale et yedegem that you um you will be busy fulfilling being filling the fullness everything done today god has commanded to be done um to make expiation for you per alechem yom kippur Lechaper, to to expiate to atone We've explored that term a little bit in the past. You shall remain at the entrance of the tent of meeting day and night for seven days, keeping God's charge that you may not die. For so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that God commanded through Moshe. Okay, so we have the whole ordination process here, uh, the investiture of Aaron and his sons, their anointing, um, they have to be at the petah at the opening of the tent for seven days and nights. Okay. So any, anything anybody wants to say come, till now? Mark? Anything? Brit la eighth day, right? So seven days is a common Israelite term of time. Seven days is, uh, Completion. Yes. How long did it take to create heaven and earth? Six days. And then you need Shabbat. For the cycle to be complete, you have six days of busyness and one day of Shabbat. The cycle's not complete without Shabbat. So seven days is creation. So seven days marks for Israelites the cycle of fullness. It's a week. That is kind of their standard reference of time. The week, what does eight mean then? If you have seven days and that's completeness, what's eight? Beyond time, beyond the complete. So we watch for seven and eight, which which is it? Like, which is being chosen, seven or eight? Um, So let's look at our sheet. The first comment is going to be on this Vayakrev business. This is from the website, um, you can read it parshanut, but it's, it's a play on parshanut. The study of, the unpacking of a Parsha is called parshanut. So this is a play on that. Uh, undressed to kill. Um, and brought them forward via creve is the same language we use for bringing forward offerings, korbanut. Even though if you don't read Hebrew, you can see the same characters, right, show up in those two words onto the altar. Aaron then becomes, in a sense, the first offering in the tabernacle. If this is true, then when Moses ties Aaron tight, first with one belt and then another, it is as if Aaron is being bound to the altar, much as Isaac once was. For as Aaron takes on his new role as high priest, he is essentially offering up his life. This is dangerous work, after all. In the very next partial, we'll see two of Aaron's sons die, for lighting the wrong fire in the tabernacle. And every year on Yom Kippur, we sing about how when the high priest emerged from the Holy of Holies, we were elated in large part because if anything had gone wrong, he would have died. Not to mention that the whole job is to oversee a constant stream of slaughter and sacrifice. Aaron will literally be surrounded by death. So I don't think I'd ever really before paid attention to the fact that it's the same verb as what it means to offer a sacrifice. But that's essentially um, our commentator is saying it, that's essentially what's happening. It's not an accident that that's the word used. It could have just said, bring him into the tent. It didn't have to use the same verb that it uses for sacrifice. Um, But that there's a hint here as old as the writing of Torah, that, that this is a very serious thing that's happening for Aaron. And his sons, they are being offered because what we know they do is protect the Israelites, right? They take their, their, the lightning rods. If any zappage is going to happen, it happens to Aaron and the Levites, the priests and the Levites. They become the way Israel is protected. They are at risk all the time. It's an appropriate verb to use for what's happening for Aaron and his sons right now. They're being essentially offered on behalf of the people. Okay. So now we're going to look at this business about you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days, right? Until all this business is completed. You shall remain at the entrance day and night that you may not die. All right. So let's look at what Zornberg says. She she's This is carrying over from the, the previous paragraph. This is a process that is repeatedly called miluim, literally filling. This means installation, the fitting of a jewel into its setting, or the investiture where one's hand is filled with a symbolic authority. So think about the, the queen, Queen Elizabeth being crowned. There's a crown on her head, and then what happens with her hands? She has a scepter in one and the orb and the other. So she's saying, Zornberg is saying that's where this word comes from. Miluim is the same word that you would use for, you know, taking the staff and the orb, filling the hands with the symbols of investiture. It's the same word, either actively or passively. Oh, sorry. uh, Or the investiture where one's hand is filled with symbolic authority. Either actively or passively, a filling process takes place at the entrance to the tabernacle during these seven transitional days until the filling days are filled, right, that we read. Between interior and exterior space, a drama takes place. The priests are not to go forth from that threshold. They are to stay there day and night. The word "teshvu," you shall stay, echoes the seven-day festival of? Sukkot, you shall stay in booths for seven days in order that your generations may know that you stayed in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. Strikingly, Moses uses the same key terms in both texts, going forth, staying, and seven days. To stay is both to rest, to dwell, and to be, in a sense, suspended, held back. The booths are a reminder of the Exodus experience of a departure, a going forth into the wilderness world. The apprentice priests reenact the first part of the Exodus, the Passover night. When God had instructed the people, you shall not go forth from the entrance of your homes till morning. During this Passover night, too, the people were under house arrest, girded and booted for the journey, eating the Paschal offering. Suspended between past and future, this was a moment of focused attention, staying in the rich, older sense of the word, of staying, holding back, or delaying. The epic event of exodus, going forth, expression, liberation, is predicated upon the previous night of shimurim, of expectation, vigilance, watching, waiting. Alright, so talk to me about that. So she, what is she doing here? Brilliant, as always. What is she doing? She's making a connection between the priest having to shave, to sit, to be, to hang out, to dwell at the entrance seven days and nights. She's correlating that with Sukkot, the seven days y'all shall shave, you shall live, dwell, whatever, in booths to remember the exodus. But she goes further. Yeah, you're going to remember the exodus and you're going to, and this business is also going to include the very start of the exodus, which starts the night before anything happens. You shall stay in your homes, right? And you cannot go out until morning or you will be DED. So She's saying there is, there seems to be in, in both cases, this idea of there being a night of shimurim, this night that the Israelites spend in their homes. They don't spend it lounging and maybe going to bed early, right? Cause it's going to be a big day tomorrow and they need to get their sleep. Th- that is not the sense. The sense is they have their Samsonite luggage packed, right? They have their, you know, travel. Sivas on their feet and the ones they only wear when they travel right you've got your travel pants on and your you know travel jacket and your travel you know belt that has all your id and your passport and your foreign currency you've got all that that's how they spend that night like ready to go but you're not going but we're prepared to go but we're not going and we really want to go if we're gonna go but we're not going so this 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 night of shimurim, uh, sh- shmore, to guard. It's a night of guarding and watching and attending and waiting and expectation, but you have to stay. That precedes the motion, the action, right? Something that's going to happen. And then there's this sense of uh, completion. So she's, she seems right. to say that both it's present both in the Exodus narrative, what the people have to do, and that is mirrored by what the priests have to do. And I think about this a lot when I think about people going through a life transition and how terrible we are about giving people that time of transition before the event. We're just terrible about it. We have everybody crazy and running around and doing things. And like, there's not a lot of room for shimurim, for the night of waiting, of staying, of expectation, of vigilance before the transformative ritual. Does that make sense? I find this a lot. I find people who are planning a funeral are so overwhelmed with details and whatever and whatever. They don't. There's not. There's not provided for them that time of okay, you're going to stop planning now, and you're going to take 24 hours to sit with the fact that you're burying your mother tomorrow. It's the same thing uh, before you enter spiritual space. So whether you're going to do the amidas, step back and you move forward, there's a preparation state before you can enter holy space. There are, Or might should be <laughs> right. Well, like think about it. That's what like teaching do, do we? Do we shift like, gears? Like you said, during the Amidah, sure. So it's three steps back, three for that's it. Like, what if we really did have time? Like, I think about when we do have the La for Slichot on the patio, and we ask everyone to enter the sanctuary in silence. Um, it is a whole... No- Dana laughs, like, yeah, good luck doing that regularly um, with Jews. So, like, but, like, everyone enters the sanctuary in silence, and it is a much different feel when we walk through that door, it is a much different sense of what we're entering into, even though it's the exact same space. Um, and in Duluth, we always had everyone leave in silence, like no one talked when they left. Everyone, we sat and people could sit for as long as they wanted at the end of the service and people just got up quietly and left and a, a bunch left and it was over, of course. Um, but, but no one talked to each other. And, the, and so the, the exit, the transition back into normal space was very different out of that sacred space when it was done intentionally. And I think there's something to what she's saying that that there, there's a prep there's a there's a thing before the transition that that I feel like we're missing a lot of the time. I feel this way with couples when they get married. Oh my God. Oh my God, what goes on at weddings? It's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. The amount of minutiae that bride and groom are dealing with till the last second, especially the bride. Well, did you want the flowers over here? Do you want, she's dealing with all, she should be secluded and not allowed to anybody to talk to her except me for like 24 hours. (laughs) It's just, we just don't give enough. I think this is an important part of their ritual. They stay at the entrance of the tent for seven days and seven nights before they can actively be priests. There has to be this. This vigilant time of waiting, of expectation, of of wanting to go forward and also being scared to go forward and honoring that and sitting with that um, before a real transition, a, a conscious transition happens in a circle. Certain- I think that was really cool. All right. This is Rabbi Noah Kushner. I'm surprised at where Moses, Aaron, and Aaron's sons have their ordination ceremony in Parshat Tzav. One would expect that the ordainees would be up close to the altar or near the Ark in the Ohel Moed, the Tent of Meeting. But in fact, God explicitly and repeatedly commands them to stay in the petach, in the entrance of the Tent of Meeting. Biblical scholars explain that the petach was a courtyard, a type of reception area. But why does the high priestly ordination take place between the Tent of Meeting and the world outside, meaning on this courtyard? Perhaps the reason the ordination took place in the Petah is because God wanted to teach Moses, Aaron, and Aaron's children something about being holy. Namely, the real work of God is not only in the tent of meeting. It is also at the intersection at the petach between the tent of meeting and the, <laughs> right, I catch it as I go and the world outside. Anyone can be holy next to an ark or an altar. But it is something else to be holy while looking into the faces of the people of Israel. Anyone can be holy by an altar. What does it mean to be holy when you're looking into the face of the congregation? The ordination lasted a week. Seven days is a long time to stay outside the tent of meeting and not go home. I suspect Moses and Aaron and the children of Aaron must have seen the crowds come and go over those seven days they must have even witnessed some complaining what would jews How? not possible some unrest even some fighting what must what must it have been like to look at the people of israel for 7 days straight it would have been comfortable uh, uh, uncomfortable i'm sure that was it, it would have been uncomfortable but perhaps this discomfort was part of the point god was trying to teach that just as there is holiness in the altar and ark inside the tent, there is holiness in the hopeful and tired faces outside the tent. Where does God reside? Yes, in the tent of meeting, but also outside, in the faces of Israel and beyond. For we may serve God in our temple, but God also guards us all from without. Adonai yishmord tseitcha uvoecha meata ve'adolam. God will, here's that language of Shimurim, of Lishmor, Adonai Yishmor, God will shomer, God will guard, Tzetcha, oh you're going out, Uvo echa, and you're coming in, Meatave Adolam, not just you're coming in, but you're going out. God will guard your going out and you're coming in from now until forever. So a beautiful teaching about even here, where is holiness? Everywhere. And don't forget, Who, whom it is you're actually serving, you are serving the people, not God. You are serving the people because it's the people who need what's happening in the Mishkan to karov, to come close to the divine and have the divine come close to them. Yes. Don't think this is all about y'all. Don't think you're something special. Don't think you serve me. I don't need any of this. They do. This is for them. And it is a remarkable thing to look for a long time into the face of the congregation. It is a remarkable thing and to feel the weight of what that means of service to all of those people with all of their needs, with all of their secrets. What that's, that's the blessing, by the way. If you see a crowd, blessed are you, God, knower of secrets. So to look at people with all of their secrets, with all of their, yeah, yeah, exactly to draw close. It's, uh, it's quite intense. I will attest to that. Moses and Aaron went inside the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people and the presence of God appeared to all the people. This is from 923. So this is, this is the end of all of that. Now they are doing their first acts as priests. They come out and bless the people. And the presence of Adonai appeared to all the people. So it's like, yay, right? Like it worked. The presence of God showed up. Everything is groovy. Here's Rashi. And they came out and blessed the people. They said the words that conclude the prayer of Moses, which is found apparently in Psalms 90. May the beauty of God, our God, be upon us. Meaning. May it be God's will that the Shekhinah may rest upon the work of your hands. They invoked just this blessing and not another formula. Why? Okay, so Rashi, you have to understand Rashi. What's the problem when they came out and blessed the people? R- Rashi, Rashi's always got a problem or there's no reason to comment. Why is Rashi commenting here? We always have to ask what's Rashi's question they came out and they blessed the people so why did why, why can't that be enough what's missing what is rashi worried about he he gives us a hint to what he's worried about they said the words that conclude the prayer of moses what's rashi's problem rashi's problem is it doesn't say what the blessing was what blessing they came out and blessed the people what which which one like what are you talking about you got, so rashi gives us the answer how do it, how does he know this we don't know, Um, but uh, probably it's a Midrashic tradition, right? That, um that what did, what, I mean, I'm sure there were arguments about what did they say? What was this blessing there? I'm sure there were arguments. Rashi subscribes to the argument that says it was the conclusion of the prayer of Moses, of course, from Psalm 90. Duh. Um, and how does that end? May the beauty of, I'm trying to look at the Hebrew. Here's your, so, no, not that. May the beauty of the Lord be... Oh, yeah. Noam Adonai Aleinu. Okay, so uh, uh, beauty is an interesting interpretation. Okay, but we'll just... May the beauty of Adonai, our God, be upon us. May it be God's will, says Rashi. What it means is may it be God's will that the Shekhinah may rest upon the work of your hands. So so their ble- their blessing... The people, Aaron and his sons are blessing the people, saying, may it be God's will that the Shekhinah rests on the work of your hands. Okay, so this whole Mishkan thing that you've done for all this time, may God's Shekhinah rest on it. They invoke just this blessing and not another formula. Why? And you have to love this. Because during the whole seven days of the installation, when Moses was setting up the tabernacle and officiating therein, and dismantling it daily, the Shekhinah had not rested upon it. And the Israelites felt ashamed, saying to Moses, Oh, our teacher Moses, all the trouble which we have taken was only that the Shekhinah may dwell among us, so that we may know that the sin of the golden calf has been atoned for on our behalf. He therefore said to them, This is a thing which God commanded that you should do, so that the glory of God may appear unto you meaning only after these offerings will have been brought by Aaron will God's glory appear to you. My brother Aaron is more worthy and excellent than I am so that through his sacrifices and ministration, the Shekhinah will rest upon you and you will thereby know that the omnipresent God has chosen him to bring his Shekhinah upon you. All right. So what we hear in Rashi is this anxiety that says they set it up And for seven days, there's there's no kavod Adonai. There's no appearance of the divine presence. So where does Rashi immediately go? When the people see that for seven days, there's no kavod Adonai, what do they assume? That what? It's not that they assume there's no God, that they screwed up. He uses the word shame. They feel shame. They feel deeply ashamed of the golden cap. And don't feel worthy of God's presence to fill the thing they made. And what does Rashi then say that Moshe says? It's not that. First of all, they set it up and take it down every day for seven days. Practicing, I guess, right? Set it up and take it down. Set it up and take it down. And never does the Kabbalah show up. But what Moshe says is don't worry. It's because Aaron is so much greater than I that... Only after the seven days of investiture and when Aaron makes the sacrifices, then the covenant of Adonai will appear. Well, they're, I mean, they're, they're not offering anything yet, right? It's only after those seven days. But what he's saying is it's going to be Aaron's ministration, administration of the sacrifices that are going to make them effective enough that the covenant will appear. Okay. Sorenberg says, Rashi comments here on the blessing of Moses and Aaron on the eighth day after the inauguration process has come to an end. The content of the blessing tells us why it was necessary. There had been an expectation that God's presence, the Shekhinah, would come to rest in the completed structure. Instead, nothing happened. The people's overwhelming reaction is shame. They have failed to achieve full forgiveness for the golden calf. This is the meaning of the emptiness they experience. Have you ever felt ashamed? Anybody ever felt ashamed? Um, how How easy is it to feel full when you're ashamed? It's impossible. It's impossible. This is shame, which is deeper than guilt. Guilt is a judgment. I should have done X, but I did Y. Or I shouldn't have done X, and I did. That is a judgment. That's guilt. Shame is, therefore, I am a horrible person. I am a sinner. I am unworthy. That is shame. Those are different things, and they're very important distinctions that I work with a lot in my office. In my study, I deal with this a lot the difference between guilt and shame. We have a story of failure after seeming success. The essential event fails to happen. That being, of course, the Shekhinah filling the Mishkan. Once again, the significance of this failure is that full forgiveness has been withheld, which only has one D. This time of frustration is associated with shame. After all this work, Nothing. There is a natural lament at the emptiness, the pointlessness of all the effort. The shame is connected with the failure to know that the golden calf has been fully atoned. The aim of all the work was knowledge, right? So they need to know da'at, that deep knowing, the one that means to know someone in the biblical sense, right? Why does it mean to know someone in the biblical sense? Because it's the same word in Hebrew to know and to, you know, know somebody. Um, it's the same word in Hebrew. So what Zornberg is saying is that they, they, it's a failure to know, to really get, to believe fully with their whole selves that the golden calf has been fully atoned. The aim of all the work was knowledge, that intimate knowledge and awareness of God's presence. This is a subjective failure. They have not been worthy of such knowledge. They have failed in a sense to love enough. The scene is resolved when Aaron offers sacrifices. Then the people know that he is God's choice. And that, and at that moment, the Shekhinah descends. So Zornberg is taking this back also to a sense of, there's this sense of completion and then a failed, there's a, a huge sadness or an anxiety at the emptiness, like nothing happens. And then they experience deep shame that it's about them. And it's kind of only after that that they are able to, um, to know the kavod, to know God's present. And, and in Hebrew, it's intentional, the use of that word, right? That, that they are able to know she's suggesting means they are able to be intimate. When one is feeling shame, can one be intimate? No. So they, that shame had to be resolved before the people could know, right? That they'd been forgiven could know God in that sense of, of an intimate kind of, of knowing. Um, and any, and any deep knowing is by definition intimate, right? If you really know another human being, by definition, that's about intimacy, which is why her book is called the hidden order of intimacy. Um, and that it's their shame uh, on some level that, that blocks it, that blocks. Uh, their ability to be able to. Okay. I don't think we have time to do. We don't have time to do this last one. All right. Any, any comments on any of that? I, I just kept thinking about Moses role and leadership and what that he went through. He went, I mean, he, he went to build everything every day, took it down. Um, and his job was to translate the meaning for Aaron. So, Aaron could translate it to the people, and ultimately they have to look inside themselves, who the people have to find the the holiness inside themselves and the 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 presence of God they have to realize the presence of God themselves ultimately nice. so I mean Moses really what a leader in the end, it still is a story of Moses, and he's an example of leadership for so many people right remember though. And not to take away from what you just said, but he's instructed to do all this. So this is not just Moshe's brilliance, right? It's Moshe's instructed by God. So you might say in that sense, he's inspired as a leader, right? It, 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 the, the, no part of our tradition understands this to be about just about Moshe and his skills as a leader, right? It's about God, God instructing Moshe. How to do this? Or correct? Correct. Every leader, right, has to figure out, right, how to. And and where do we get our instructions? Right? Where do leaders get their instructions? I mean, it's very clear in Torah where where everyone gets their instructions. Right? A king. What does a king have to do? What's a, a mitzvah that the king has to fulfill? Anybody know? A king has to write their own sefer Torah. A king has to write a sefer Torah. Why? To get to know all the words of God. To know the words of God, but one could just study. It really sinks in if you have to, you have to <laughs> really write it, it. Really sinks in. Sinks it also it's, cool. also it's an acknowledgement that you know it as well. So uh, and it's an acknowledgement that you there's an authority higher than yours that where the instructions come from are higher than you. This is one of the things that makes ancient Israel so radical is that it is their loyalty to the law. And the law is above whoever the leader is. Moshe, Aaron, the king, whoever it is, the princes, the leaders of the tribes. The law is over all of them because the law comes from the highest authority possible. And it is about recognizing that over and over and over and over as leaders, as As people with power over other people, do not for one second forget. And a lot of this and a lot of the law is addressed to whom? To landed Israelites. Mm -hmm. When you must leave the corners of your farm, well, that means you have a farm. It's talking to the male head of household of people who have land and have wealth. That's who needs to not forget and be instructed about the law all the time are the people who had control over other people like any kind of leadership including leadership of a household which was bigger than than what we think of as a household but you know think about it, of your clan like that that's your obligation and to protect the widow and the orphan and all those other folks that are around that that you have some uh ability to help or not so it would be uh Lynn Himmelstein is saying, it would be a good idea for our elected leaders to have a copy of the Constitution to remind them what the laws are. Yeah, you think? Do you think some of our leaders have read the Constitution? Right. That, and that, that terrifies Torah. That is a terrifying possibility to Torah. When are you supposed to talk about these things? All the time. Teach them to your children. Speak of them when you sit down and when you rise up, when you lie down and when you get up and when you're in your house and when you're walking around. That's how well you're supposed to know these things and how much you're supposed to be engaged with them. And the things mean the laws. How many of our leaders do we feel like spend an inordinate amount of time actually thinking about the law of the land and how it can best be applied to create a society of justice and equity. I'm not saying they don't. I'm saying a leader and you know who I'm talking about, um, who doesn't know the law is a terrifying possibility to Torah. That's the worst. The King has to write their own scroll because it's understood that is the scariest thing possible is somebody with power who does not know the law that is about a higher order than whatever the leader themselves want. Hmm? The king meaning the king of Israel. Yes. Um, so anyway, um, I will conclude there saying that uh, may we. Uh, also uh, as citizens, i mean it's our job in a democracy to also know well right the law and what what we believe are policies and expressions of that law and applications of the law and and to actively work for them and advocate for the the institution of policies that we feel will bring about a more just, equitable compassionate society that is our obligation as citizens um, that is why we say the shema you shall teach them to your children and talk about them all the time it's not just leaders it's every single one of us our tradition says that is responsible for participating in creating that society based in these in these values you've been listening to rabbi amy bernstein's friday morning torah study from Cahil at israel in pacific palisades california